week, we pretty much covered all of the chapter. We covered a lot, and we covered all of it. We saw that this vision of Daniel's first deals with the Persian or the Medo-Persian Empire, then goes to the Greek, and then lastly, the Seleucid Empire. And with the Seleucids, we were introduced to a figure, uh, another horn, whom I said was Antiochus IV, or as he is better known to history, Antiochus Epiphanes. We saw in the text itself, and we confirm this from history with 2 Maccabees and other sources, that Antiochus was someone who more or less declared war on the God of the Bible and sought to eradicate Judaism and any semblance of the keeping of the law, even turning the temple in Jerusalem into a temple of Zeus. And for those who would not bow the knee, he slaughtered wholesale before he himself was ultimately killed by God through an illness. However, as I said last week, for all of this, though it is very interesting history in its own right, yet for all of this, the real significance for us lies not so much in the past, but in the future. Because our Lord Christ and his apostles see in this prophecy of Daniel, though fulfilled typologically in the historical figure of Antiochus Epiphanes, nevertheless, they see and warn of a yet future fulfillment. I mentioned that particularly our Lord in Matthew 24 and Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 both mention or allude to the abomination of desolation of Daniel's prophecy, which refers to Antiochus's defiling of the temple. And yet for them, they are warning the church, beware when this happens. It is something to come still. And so what I'd like us to do today is take Daniel 8 and what we read about Antichrist here and his coming and connect it to other clearer passages in the New Testament and draw out some big picture conclusions. I would say in Daniel 8, we have in the nutshell just about all the major components that you see about Antichrist and the end of the age that you see expounded upon in later passages. It's all there in nutshell, and we want to kind of take all these together and distill them. What are the basics? What are the, the big picture conclusions we can say about Antichrist and his coming? Sometimes in the news, um, there'll be something that's happening, and you'll read an article. It'll say something like, top five things to know about whatever, right? Or Jason Delgado teased me, if it's very click, clickbaity, we were surprised to learn these four things, right? We were shocked when we found out these four things. We want something kind of like that about Antichrist and his coming. What are the top things? What are the big takeaways about his coming? Well, if you are a note taker, I have the following four things to know about the coming of the Antichrist. That would be the title. Shocking four things to know about the Antichrist to come, okay? They each have a one-word heading, but I'll, I'll explain what I mean behind them. First, deception. Deception. The coming of the Antichrist inaugurates a worldwide period of satanic deception. 
Second, persecution. Persecution. For those who are not deceived and who will not bow the knee, a worldwide period of persecution will break out on a scale never seen before, namely a global scale, because by that time, the gospel will have gone to all nations. Third, abomination. Abomination. That just as Antiochus stood in the temple of God, so according to the New Testament writers, Antichrist will come not so much as an enemy without the temple of God, but within, namely within the church, from within the Christian community itself, and here I will make some more connections to the papacy. And then lastly, for good alliteration, retribution. Retribution. Deception, persecution, abomination, and retribution, namely that the coming of Antichrist is followed by the coming of the real Christ, who when he returns will deal out retribution on Antichrist, Satan, the enemies of the people of God, as he takes his people unto himself forever. So deception, persecution, abomination, and retribution. And all of these are in a nutshell in Daniel 8. And I would say, if you read other major passages of the end times and Antichrist, just about in almost all of them, you will find all or three out of four. They just, they reoccur again and again, okay? All right. Well, let's dive into this. First, deception. The coming of the Antichrist inaugurates a worldwide period of satanic deception. As far as where we see this in a nutshell in Daniel 8, I would point you to two verses. This is what we'll, we'll do as we go along with our points. We'll see them in a nutshell, and then we'll connect them outward. But first, in Daniel 8, at verse 12, it says, And on account of the transgression... The host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. So the horn or Antiochus will fling truth to the ground. Since truth is the opposite of deception, to throw it down is to be a deceiver. Next, look down at verse 25. Verse 25. It says, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. So he casts truth to the ground, and deceit succeeds by his influence. As far as the future Antichrist to come, Scripture is abundantly clear, is abundantly clear that not just with his coming, but through his coming, we see the beginning of a period of worldwide deception. Now, before we look at the verses which speak about that, and let me say the scriptures um, speak about this all over the place, but before we do that, let me first say that the scriptures indicate that this period of worldwide deceit is preceded by the worldwide spread of the truth of the gospel. So, for example, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. <coughs> Revelation 20, 1 through 3. 
says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, when I was a dispensationalist, I thought it was crazy to understand the millennium as the church age, because how can you look at the world and, and say that Satan's influence is not at work? How can you look at all the evil going on in the news and say that Satan is, is bound somehow? He seems rather active. That is a misunderstanding, however, of the amillennial position concerning the binding of Satan. It is not an absolute binding, as if every aspect of his influence were curtailed. Rather, he is so bound so that, as the text says, quote, he would not deceive the nations any longer. That's exactly what we see in the church age, starting from Jerusalem. Outwards to the ends of the earth, the truth of the gospel has been spreading and being received among the nations. We are proof of this. I don't even know if there are any Jews here today. We're mostly Gentiles. We live in a faraway land, a continent that they didn't even know existed at the time. You can find true churches in every continent. In some of the most remote places, the gospel has gone forth. If anything, this tells us just how close the Lord might be to returning. Nevertheless, at the end of the millennium, Satan is released and by Christ, or by implication, Antichrist comes, since according to 2 Thessalonians 2.9, Antichrist coming, quote, is in accord with the activity of Satan. But with this release, what do we read in verses 7 and 8 of Revelation 20? It says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So with his binding, the gospel spreads to all nations, and when he is loosed, he can again deceive, and a period of worldwide deception begins. Next, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and let me say here, I don't have, a, I don't have time to give a full defense of this, I'm just going to state it. There are resources I could point you to. Uh, there is a good lecture by Dr. Kim Riddlebarger on this where he says this. But for now, let me just say that Matthew 24, on the one hand, does speak about things in the immediate future of Jesus' hearers, namely the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus. However, there are things in Matthew 24 that cannot be limited to that event. It's very end timesy. okay? So it's both. There is an immediate typological fulfillment, and yet there is one to come, and that is really the biblical pattern that we see. It kind of fits that, okay? Nevertheless, for our purposes today, let's just consider Matthew 24 from the perspective of the later fuller fulfillment. What we see is a great deal about end-time deception. Look with me starting in verse 23. Christ says, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, 
or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. However, still, what I want to point your attention to in this passage is that this time of deception comes after the truth has spread to all nations. Look in verse 14 of Matthew 24. Christ says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So all that to say, this period of worldwide deception is preceded by a period of worldwide gospel evangelizing and receiving and the church spreading to all nations. However, after the gospel goes to all nations, then deception comes. Before we examine in more detail what kind of a deception it is, let me just share with you a few more passages which connect deception to antichrist and the end of the age because this is all over the place and i think it's because the new testament writers really want us to get this so that we are not deceived so first turn with me to second thessalonians 2 second thessalonians 2 verses 8 through 12 Paul says, <clears throat> Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Great deluding influence. Next, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 Verses 18 through 22. 1 John 2, 18 through 22. John says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they have been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have written to you because you do not, or to, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist the one who denies the Father and the Son. So he is a liar, it says. Next, 2 John 1.7. We're almost done here. 2 John 
1.7. It says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then lastly, 1 Timothy 4.1. 1 Timothy 4.1. Paul says, But the Spirit explicitly says, and it's so funny that he says, the Spirit explicitly says, because it is everywhere in the Scripture, the Spirit explicitly saying this, that in the later times, some will fall away from the truth, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So we see this all over the place. The coming of Antichrist is associated with a period of worldwide deception, and in fact, it is the Antichrist himself who is the deceiver par excellence. Well, what can we say about the kind of deception that is to come? Is it just all truth in general that is thrown down or something more specific? I would say it is a deception away from the true Christ to a false Christ. It is a deception away from the true Christ to a false one. But it's not just all truth in general. But as we see with those antichrists that have already come, it is specifically an attack or a denial on the truth of Jesus Christ, and it seeks to replace him with a false one. In fact, just as every falsehood must bear some resemblance to the truth, so also antichrist will in many ways be an imitation Christ, a knockoff, if you will. There will be a certain resemblance to the real thing. This is why not only the world will be deceived, but so many who are in the church. Now, if they are deceived, as John says, it's because they were not of us, but such will be the deception. It will bear a striking resemblance to Christ in many ways. For example, Christ himself in Matthew 24 speaks about false Christs and false prophets. Perhaps when Antichrist comes, just as Christ had John the Baptist, Antichrist will have others heralding his arrival. Just as Christ did many signs and wonders to demonstrate he was the Son of God, so also will Antichrist. Paul says his coming is accompanied, quote, with all power and signs and false wonders. Furthermore, it may even be that this Antichrist will have some sort of resurrection of his own, just like the real Christ. For example, listen to this. John says in Revelation 13.3, speaking of the beast, the Antichrist, just listen. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Did any of that wording sound familiar to you? How about the phrase, as if it had been slain? I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. Where else is that phrase found in Revelation? Well, Revelation 5, 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. In fact, G.K. Beale observes, quote, there are so many parallels between the description of the beast in Revelation 13 
and that of Christ elsewhere in Revelation. Both Christ and the beast have swords in Revelation. Both have followers who have their names written on their foreheads. Both are depicted with horns, are slain, rise to new life, and are given new authority, have authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and receive universal worship. So remember, Christian, as Paul says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. When Antichrist comes, he will not look like Dracula. He will not look like uh, Thanos or something. I don't know. What, not Mordor. Uh, you know what I mean. Sauron. In many respects, he will look like Christ, except he will twist the truth. For us, church, this means we must be very, very familiar with the real Christ. In fact, John's exhortation for Christians after discussing, immediately after discussing the deceiving Antichrist is to call them to abide in the truth. This is how you are not deceived, by abiding in the truth. He says, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Similarly, Paul, after talking about this time of great deception and this powerful, deluding influence, exhorts the Thessalonians, saying, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Abide in the truth, church. Abide in the truth handed down by the apostles. You'll notice both John and Paul mentioned things which were heard or which were taught. That's the apostolic preaching which has now been preserved in the Word of God. Abide in the truth of the Scriptures, and you will abide in the Lord. I pray that this year will be for you a year of abiding and growing in the truth of Christ. That you would look back at the end of 2024 and say, I, I've made progress. I, I still mostly, I'm, you know, Lord have mercy, right? But I have made progress. I am growing in the truth. Abide, Christian. Because the time is coming when truth will be flung to the ground. And sadly, so many, even that have professed Christ, will go headlong into that deception because they did not abide. After all, consider this, Satan's designs will not have changed much. The last great attempt at deception will look a great deal like the first. What does the woman say? The serpent deceived me. Where did that happen? In the garden? which is very similar to a temple, as many will say. It's not very different, after all. We must abide. Next, persecution. Persecution. 
namely for those who are not deceived and who will not worship this false Christ, they will be persecuted. We see this in Daniel 8, in verse 24 in particular. It says, His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. We read last week from 2 Maccabees about this time under Antiochus Epiphanes in Judea and the many horrors that the faithful had to endure. However, again, the New Testament writers see Daniel's words speaking about a future time of persecution. This is spoken of in many places in the New Testament that we might turn to, but perhaps none more clearly and in, and in as much detail as Revelation 13. Turn with me there. Revelation 13. Our brother read part of this in the beginning. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 7. It says of the Antichrist beast, It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword must he be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. What a powerful way to end, to, to speak about such a, per, a persecution. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. This is when the rubber will meet the proverbial road, captivity, sword. Furthermore, it seems that aside from outright violence, there will be many other difficulties intended to break those who do not conform. For example, in verse 17, John says of the false prophet that, quote, he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark. Now, this is not getting chipped, okay? Your dog does not have the mark of the beast, okay? It can't be because Christians also have the mark of Christ as well, okay? This is, this is apocalyptic literature, okay? He provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So whether by outright violence or being forced into poverty, it will be a time of great persecution, which will indeed require perseverance and faith. Furthermore, what makes this persecution unique and Christ says it is unique. He says in Matthew 24, 21, it will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. What makes it unique, though, I share this with you on the one hand to, to encourage you, is not that these kinds of things have never been endured by Christians before, but that it has never been on such a worldwide scale. You go, I don't know how that's meant to encourage me, pastor. 
Because, Christian, there are believers right now for whom this is their reality. This is their life. There is either the threat of death or poverty and starvation for their family. That's just what it means to follow Christ right now in some places on the earth. But the encouragement, Christian, is that God is sustaining them. Just as God has sustained all those through the millennia that have been severely persecuted. And if God can preserve them through the fire, he will also preserve us if he calls us to walk through it. John Calvin published four sermons in a little book. You can now find this under the title of Faith Unfeigned by Banner of Truth. Faith Unfeigned. But the sermons were meant specifically to be an encouragement and exhortation to persecuted Christians living in Roman Catholic lands, particularly those in France. But in his book, in his second sermon, Calvin reminds them of this very truth. I want to read what he says, and and I hope it will encourage us as well. He says this, Let us come to the promises that God has given us for our consolation. Namely, that he will so sustain us by the power of his Holy Spirit, that whatsoever our enemies do or Satan their head, yet they shall not get the upper hand over us. Indeed, we see how he displays his graces in such times. For such invincible steadfastness as is found in true martyrs is a sufficient demonstration that he works mightily in them. And you read these stories of people being fried in oil on griddles, people being tortured and flayed throughout church history. And he sustained them. They had invincible steadfastness by the power of God. He says, therefore, let us take this shield to repulse and push back all fears with which we are assailed. And let us not restrain the power of God's spirit to such insignificance. We think not, but that he will easily overcome all men's cruelties. God has all power. Christian. God has all power. However severe pain might be, he has the power to to clothe you and, and imbue you with his spirit that you may endure even while praising him. If your heavenly father calls you to live through such times, you are blessed because it is a great privilege and blessing to suffer for the name of Christ. And he will clothe you with great power and patience, and afterward you will receive your reward, and it will be great. Do not be afraid. Do not live in fear, Christian. The Lord will sustain you. Next, abomination. Abomination. Just as Antiochus stood in the temple of God, so also according to the New Testament, The Antichrist will come not from outside the temple, namely the church, but from within, from within the Christian community itself. First, it will be helpful here and necessary to define some terms. What is the abomination of desolation? 
And we know it refers to Antiochus's desecration of the temple, but why that fancy term, the abomination of desolation? It sounds like Bibleese, right? And we just, we say these things and we never, what does that even mean, right? Well, in Hebrew, there are two words which we translate in English as abomination, although modern translations tend to, to translate it as a detestable thing. Detestable, but abomination is, is also one. The first word in Hebrew is to'eva, to'eva. And it has the sense of something that is disgusting, highly offensive, detestable, and it can refer to a wide range of things. So, for example, grievous sexual sins like homosexuality are said to be abominations. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination, to'eva. Furthermore, lesser, we might say in a certain sense, kinds of sins can also be mentioned like this. For example, Proverbs 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. And then lastly, it can and often does refer to idolatry. Deuteronomy 27.15, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image an abomination to the Lord. That's to'eva, probably the most common word for abomination. The second word, which is often translated as abomination, is shikutz. Shikutz. Shikutz likewise has the sense of something that is detestable and highly offensive, but it is almost exclusively used to speak of idols and almost as an insulting, mocking term. Instead of calling something a god, it says, I'm going to say what you really are. You're, you're an abomination, okay? So, for example, 1 Kings 11, 5, and 7, and here the NASB says detestable idol. I think the force is more hard-hitting. It's abomination, so I'll just say that. But it says, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the sons of Ammon. It's very exclusively talking, for the most part, about idols, whereas Toeva is broader. Well, when we come to the abomination of desolation in Daniel, it is the second term, shakutz. And for Hebrew listeners and for us, we should understand that as referring very much to an idol, especially since it is set up in the temple, which makes sense because that's exactly what Antiochus did. He set up an idol of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. So the abomination of desolation, it's calling it what it is. It's highly offensive. It's not an idol. That's too tame of a term. It is an abomination, okay? But then what is meant by desolation? The abomination of desolation, or as some translate, the abomination that desolates or that brings or causes desolation. What does that mean? Well, desolate in English, and this is the sense of the Hebrew, is related to the idea of being alone or uninhabited, like an empty wilderness. You might hear someone 
speak of a desert and say it's a desolate place. Nothing grows there. It also has this sense, however, of something that is uninhabited after it has been destroyed, very much like the idea of ruins. So, for example, in Isaiah 61.4, it says, Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So ruins, devastations, desolations, all kind of getting at the same thing. However, the word can also be used to express how someone feels inwardly, metaphorically, that inwardly they are emotionally ruined and devastated, you might say. We, we speak this way sometimes without even thinking it. We say, oh man, that wrecked me, right? If you're from California, you'd say, that thrashed me, dude. I, that thrashed me so hard, okay? It's like you are in shock. You're devastated. You are appalled. It can be used in that sense metaphorically for how you feel. For example, Jeremiah cries out in Lamentations 3, 10 through 11, speaking of God, he is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He's torn to pieces. He, he's shredded. He, he is undone. He is desolate. In fact, Daniel applies this very term to himself at the end of chapter 8. He says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. And the NASB says, But I was astounded at the vision. I prefer the ESV and the NIV, which say, I was appalled at the vision. I was made desolate by it. It was so much for me. Well, all of this means then that this abomination brings desolation, either in the sense that it makes the temple and the altar of God uninhabitable and in a state of ruins in the sense of its uncleanness, or it could mean and speak of how appalling it is. It's so unimaginably appalling and offensive that this abomination is not, not okay to be left in Athens or Greece somewhere, it has to be set up in the temple of the true God in Jerusalem, and they have to sacrifice pigs to it. It is appalling. It could mean either of those. Furthermore, while all of that is true, some also suggest that the term desolation or desolating is a play on words to make fun of false gods. The word in Hebrew is shomaim, shomaim. But it could be a mocking play on the word Shemayim. Shemayim. Shemayim means the heavens. And it was sometime, sometimes attached to the name of Baal. He is sometimes called Baal Shemayim, Baal of the heavens, or Lord of the heavens. It may be that the Hebrews took that and said, no, no, he's not Baal Shemayim. He's Baal Shomayim, the desolating, the disgusting and appalling the Jews often did that kind of thing elsewhere in Scripture. For example, King Saul had a son whose name was Ishbael, man of Baal. In other books, he is called Ishbosheth, man of shame. He's not Baal, he's shame. It could be that something like that is happening here, okay? Now, either way, as I said, 
What this is all referring to is Antiochus's desecration of the temple. And in fact, even in 1 Maccabees, again, though it's not scripture, yet written around the time of the events, the author identifies Antiochus's actions as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. So, for example, in 1 Maccabees 1.54, it says, And on the 15th day of Chaslau, in the 145th year, he, Antiochus, constructed an abomination of desolation on the altar. And the term in Greek is identical to the Septuagint's rendering of the Hebrew. So even they saw it, okay? Now, you might be asking yourself, okay, pastor, that's all well and good, but where is this in Daniel chapter 8? Well, the phrase abomination of desolation is not found in chapter 8. It really comes from chapters 11 and 12. However, it is mentioned in chapter 8 by a different but similar term in verse 13. Look there with me, verse 13 of Daniel 8. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? The phrase there, the transgression that causes horror is the phrase. Causes horror is the same for the word desolation or that makes desolate. They just translated it different, even though it's only a few chapters over. The only real difference between this And the abomination of desolation is the word transgression. But that's similar to abomination. A transgression is an abomination. Commentators agree that this transgression is referring to the same thing as the abomination of desolation. It's just expressed a little bit differently. It's not shikutz shomeim, but pesha shomeim. It's referring to the same thing. Well, as I have said before, Christ himself mentions the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, and Paul alludes to it in 2 Thessalonians 2 without using that exact phrase, but they're talking about the same thing. Christ says in Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then Paul says of the man of lawlessness, that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And on the one hand, this kind of gets at what we have already seen. Antichrist will deceive many that he is a false Christ. He will demand worship. However, it is significant that this all happens within the temple because it tells us the context in which Antichrist arises that it is actually from within the church of God, the temple of the New Testament. G.K. Beale, in his commentary on First and Second Thessalonians, asks, what does it mean that the Antichrist will sit in the temple? It does not refer to some future rebuilt temple in Israel, nor is it likely to refer to some past desecration of the temple in Jerusalem. Rather, it is more probable The temple is a specific metaphorical reference to the church. As argued above, one, 
The use of the phrase, the temple of God, elsewhere in Paul, without exception, refers to the church. Two, the Daniel 11 prophecy and its initial fulfillment took place within the covenant community and revolved around the temple in that community. Three, the apostasy, or the term apostasy, and its uses elsewhere in the Bible all have to do with a falling away by those within the community of faith from a former confession of loyalty to God. Consequently, he says, this teaches us that the latter-day assailant will come into the midst of the church and cause it to become predominantly apostate. He will then try to take control of the church by carrying out further deception in it. Similarly, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger in his book on the Antichrist, The Man of Sin, speaking of the many Antichrists that John says have already come, he says this, It is vital to note that these are individuals who arise from within the believing community and who then fall away, taking others with them. If there is a connection to be made between this series of Antichrists and a final Antichrist, it is likely to be found here, since Paul's man of lawlessness appears at or during a time of great apostasy. And so the point is that this standing in the temple, this attempting to take his seat and rule in the temple, is the coming of the Antichrist from within the church itself, leading many to apostasy. And without belaboring the point, I will say that this here again is excellent evidence, in my opinion, for the identification of the papacy as the Antichrist. There have been and are many great candidates for Antichrist throughout history. Karl Marx, great candidate. Muhammad, you name it. We could all take our pick and think of all the... There's so many books who have identified him. I saw one with uh, Gorbachev that said he was the Antichrist once. Okay. Yet the one with the most influence, who has arisen from within the church and who has led the most astray and continues to do so, I would say, is the Pope. And then when you connect that to the Pope's strong connections to the historical Roman Empire, which we saw Antichrist will have from Daniel 7, and the many blasphemous and pompous things he says about himself, the case is made even stronger. I could be wrong, okay? I think the evidence is, is, is pretty strong for it. Either way, if anyone's trying to take you away from the truth of Christ, don't follow him. Don't say, well, it's not the Pope. Pastor said it wasn't, so I guess we well, can go to this guy, okay? But I think the case is fairly strong. Well, lastly, and finally, and thankfully, we come to our fourth point, which is retribution. That after this horrible time, when truth is flung to the ground and Antichrist mercilessly persecutes the church of God, finally the true Christ shows up and deals out retribution upon Satan, Antichrist, and the enemies of the people of God. We see this in verse 25 of Daniel 8. Verse 25 of Daniel 8, it says, He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. He will be broken by divine judgment. That, too, is the case with the final Antichrist as well, brothers and sisters. We see this in many New Testament texts, 
There are many we could look at, but perhaps the most complete is in Revelation 19. Turn with me there. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is Christ in battle array. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Notice that language, rod of iron. That's a reference to Psalm 2. We often understand that now as people who are rebelling, let us burst the bonds of the Lord. Its ultimate fulfillment is in this last battle. That's the last attempt of Satan and his forces to cast off the yoke of the Lord and his Messiah. It says he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for a great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on his horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Amen. Church, consider... That whatever we might have to endure if we were to live through those days, and consider, if we don't have to live through those days, it's because we will have already died, and we are with that great host coming back. We are in battle array as well. But if the Lord calls us to live through those days, whatever sorrows, whatever grievous mistreatments we might face, and they will be great, Christ says there's never been a period like it, nor will there ever be one, yet that darkest of times will be followed by the dawning of the sun. I don't know if you've ever, ever had to wait through a very cold night, a very, very bitter cold night, and then the sun comes up, and the ray of the sun hits you, and your body feels warm. It will feel like that for the soul. When Christ returns, you will be so filled with joy, so replete with gladness, that you will have forgotten the pain that you endured because of the joy of his coming. 
Christ told his disciples, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that has been born into the world. Brothers and sisters, if Christ calls us to walk through that, not only will he strengthen and preserve you, but the consolation and comfort you will receive at his coming will so outweigh whatever he might call you to endure. Christ is coming, Christian. What joy. The, 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 the nations are receiving the gospel. Man, we're, we're like nailing down these unidentified people groups. We're going into the jungle now. It is getting close. Rejoice. The Lord is coming back. Be on your guard, Christian. Let no one deceive you. Remember, Antichrist is not just a future reality, but as John says, the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. As Paul says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Be on your guard. Abide in the truth. You will one day see the warm rays of Christ's coming after the darkest night. Lastly, for those of you here who have not yet come to Christ, if you are not in Christ, you will be the easiest pickings for the deceptions that are to come. And you will go headlong with the multitudes who worship the beast and who persecute the bride of Christ. You will mourn when Christ comes. Christ says when he comes, the nations will see the one they have pierced and will mourn. Why? Because the judgment has come upon them. They've been caught red-handed persecuting the bride of the bridegroom. You will be among that number if you do not repent before that time comes. But if you come to Christ today, He will wash away your sins. He will give you a new heart. He will put the truth of the Spirit within you, and it will dwell in you and preserve you and bring you unfailingly to eternal life one day. Come to Him. Do not risk it. Come to Him today. Let's pray. Father, truly, You work all things for good for those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. You are all good. You are all mercy. You are all kindness. If you should call us to walk through these times, you will so crown whatever pains we have with such mercies that we will praise you for, for even walking through those times, Father. Father, would you help us to discern truth. Father, would you keep us from the lies of the Antichrist and Satan that are even at work now? Would you help us to abide in the truth? Father, I pray for those here who have not yet received the truth by faith. Lord, that you would redeem them, that you would save them, that you would open their eyes, that they would worship the true Christ that they would receive that anointing of the Spirit that John talks about, which teaches the truth and opens their hearts. I pray you would give them that even today. Grant faith, Father. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.